Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right. Well, welcome back once again. Yeah, we just have two more weeks here, and then we break for the rest of the year. So um, thank you for showing up again. I know it's dark outside, and it certainly it certainly doesn't feel like it's time to come to church. Right? My daughter's on the way here. We're like, are we late? Because I feel like we're going to be late. It looks dark. Yeah. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you so much for the grace that you give to us that is new every day. We thank you that even though you never change, um, we experience your grace in new ways and you reveal yourself to us in, um, in different ways. And we are grateful, Lord, for how you meet us at each stage of our lives and each stage of our journeys. We pray, God, your blessing over our time together tonight. Will you help us to understand your word and understand um, what your word has to say to us, um, how we might be able to honor and glorify you through our study of this word that you have given to us. Um, I pray for all of those gathered here, Lord, that your presence would be in our midst and that you would uh, be the one guiding and directing these things tonight, that you would take these texts and uh, apply them to our hearts and into our lives through the power of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we left off last week in Exodus chapter 32. If you remember, uh, we had talked about in chapter 32, verse 1, uh, that impatience often leads to sin. The golden calf uh, incident probably occurs because the people are... The people are questioning why Moses has been gone for so long. And they start to now question the legitimacy of, of this whole kind of Canaan experience because he was gone longer than they expected, right? So now they're, they're stressing out and they're worried and they come to Aaron and ask him to build for them a golden calf. And so Aaron builds uh, or casts the calf and then we are off and running. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears. They brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Um, What Aaron did is he took them and and maybe he... um, he fashioned it into some sort of cast or something that allowed it to look like a look like a calf, and it may not have even been much of a calf at all. Um, it may have been more like a young bull. I don't know. I mean, when I think of calf, I think of kind of scrawny baby animal, and I think this could have been a substantial, large. Uh, younger bull, but still a, a bull nonetheless. Um, and so he forms this. And then notice when he brings it out, he's actually not the one who cries out. 
but rather the people cry out. You see that? Verse 4. And the people cry out, and they say something interesting. They said, these are your gods, O Israel. And the word they use for gods is this word, Elohim. Okay? We've seen this word all throughout the book of Exodus and Genesis, for that matter, because this is what God frequently calls himself, right? He is Elohim. And I don't know if you remember this from last time, but we talked about, you know, in English, you make a word plural by adding S. In Hebrew, you make a word plural by adding Im, at least for masculine words. And so Elohim is the plural form of, of God. They say then, these are your Elohim. But everywhere else, when Elohim refers to Yahweh God, they use singular verbs to refer to it, right? Elohim, he is, not they are, but he is your God, okay? But here, when the people cry out, they say, these are your Elohim, they brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So they're not kind of just masking over uh, monotheism here, they are actually claiming that these are gods, plural, more than one, and that's clear by the, the way that the grammar is set up. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's my question. What of the ten words, what of the ten commandments is being broken here? Um, maybe you need to flip back to Exodus chapter 20, but I'd actually be curious for you to talk about that with someone next to you, kind of brainstorm, which of the ten words do you think is specifically being broken in this instant. Okay, so what do you think? Which of the Ten Commandments is being broken here? Okay. Idolatry. Which would be which one? Number two. Anyone have another idea? We've got a vote for number two. A vote for number three. A vote for number four. The Sabbath. Okay, number three. I was like, all right, this is great. We're going to have a good discussion tonight. Maybe, maybe bearing false witness. Okay. So, okay. Giving false testimony. Number one. Maybe number one. Okay. Which one first and foremost do you think? Number two. I would agree. I actually think it's, it's number two that's the first one they're disobeying. I think in the process, then, they actually sort of maybe even without fully realizing it, they're disobeying number one, then therefore they're disobeying number three, and maybe also giving a false witness as well. Number two, the commandment number two, right, says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, okay? Commandment number two isn't necessarily... Uh, forbidding them from worshiping other gods as much as it's forbidding them worshiping an image. Commandment number one forbids them from worshiping any other gods, right? But commandment number two says, like, you can't make anything, even anything that looks, that you think is representation of me. That's what God's forbidding in the second commandment. So you've got to walk over number one to get to number three. In a way... Right, unless they weren't necessarily trying to make other gods 
unless they were trying to make a physical representation of Yahweh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. The whole, to me, what it, what it seemed like they were having a problem with was um, not having a physical God. It seemed like every time God showed up, they said, no way, and ran. <laughs> and said, Moses, you go talk to him. I, I can handle this. You, know, you, you right. can do it. And, and Moses was kind of the, the God guy, and he would come and tell him stuff. Well, Moses had been gone so long, and they just knew God was up on the mountain. They needed, uh, in their history, uh, of their lives, they've always had physical gods, you know, in, in Egypt and that type of thing that they needed. And they're going, hey, I need something physical. I need, I need something physical to worship, to do this with. And uh, so make something for me. You know, were they saying they're making a new God, different God? It seemed like they were going, I want, to, I want something physical to be able to remember that God. Yeah, and I, I think you're right on. I think that's exactly what's happening. I don't know that they've, they've decided suddenly to turn their backs completely on Yahweh. I think it's, it's syncretism. They're, they're kind of merging their history of serving all of these Egyptian gods with the accompanying images, which were comforting to the Egyptians, right? They're merging that with the Yahweh they know, but also I think even with Moses, the Moses piece. Um, in some ways, the calf might be a replacement for Moses. Uh, and so, yeah. If that's the case, then why would it go from a singular God to plural God? It's a great question, um, and I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think what they're saying is there's, these are, he makes for them a golden calf, and they say these are your gods because that's their framework that they're working from, from being in Egypt. Like, this is a representation of the gods. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that this is the case, perhaps even Moses and Yahweh together somehow in this, in this calf. So that's a good question, though. I don't know if that answer is entirely satisfactory. Why would Aaron allow it? That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. That's more surprising to me than why the Israelites wanted it. Yeah. He, he doesn't just allow it. He makes it, right? And then we're going to see him do something else here in just a minute. And then uh, after Moses comes down, his defense, I think, is actually mind-blowing. So, uh, I mean, this is the high priest. Yeah. It's pretty sobering. So, what is happening, I think, is that in this calf, they're not trying to say, okay, Yahweh, we're done with you. I think rather they're attempting to create for themselves some sort of image that helps them understand or, or is in a way that they uh, can visualize the presence of deity with them. They're afraid because they're in the wilderness and there's no one there to guide them or direct them. And so they want to, they want to have something visually there with them to make themselves feel better, I think. Um, and so, verse 5, this is where uh, it's pretty clear that Aaron is not uh, leading well here, right? Uh, verse 5, Aaron, when Aaron saw this, that is, when he saw them <laughs> worshiping and saying, 
These are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When he saw that, verse 5, he built an altar before it. And then Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, so this is a feast to Yahweh is is what he declares, right? Um, This proves, I think, that this was not intended to be to foreign gods, uh, like they're trying to bring in some other god of the Egyptians. I think they're, tr- they're trying in some ways to worship Yahweh, but it's holy in a way that he has not approved or has said is acceptable. Um, and Hamilton notes, this is not an attempt, Aaron's words here are not an attempt to temper the Israelites' sin as much as it is an act of baptizing blasphemy. And that's, I think, what Aaron is doing. He's... he's it's not so much an attempt to temper their sin, like, hey, let's make a feast to the Lord. Let's try to steer this back on track, as much as it is him simply baptizing blasphemy and saying, let me endorse what you're doing, and we'll call it a feast to the Lord. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, and so, verse 6 And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and offered peace offerings. Burnt offerings and peace offerings are going to be exactly what God requires of them at the beginning of Leviticus. And then the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to do something. I don't know. What does your version say at the end of verse 6? The ESV says, and they rose up to play. The NIV, I think, says to indulge in revelry. Is that what it says? Whatever that means, right? Yeah, they were not playing Monopoly, no. Um, this word is, is difficult to understand. Um, sometimes in Scripture it has a sexual connotation. Um, sometimes in Scripture it uh, seems to suggest like a joking or a jesting. So was there something sexual happening here? I'm not sure that we know for sure. And the text doesn't seem to make it explicit as to what exactly was going on. Regardless... This was not okay, right? They, they sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to engage in some sort of pagan ritual or pagan rites or something that celebrated the role of this deity that they thought they had made for themselves in their midst. And so the people, I think, are just, they're struggling to make sense of their current situation. Part of it had to do with Moses' absence, Part of it had to do, apparently, with the absence of the cloud of fire and smoke, right, that had gone before them. I think that's gone now and has kind of moved to the top of the mountain. So that's, Moses is gone. The cloud is gone. I think part of this has to do with the attractiveness of idolatry, right? This is the world in which they grew up. They're only a few months out of Egypt. I think there's still an enticement there, Um and part of it just being from what the people knew from their entire life experience. But the central problems, it seems, was something that still haunts us today. Um, and I think this is what Douglas Stewart notes when he says, it was an inability to see that the spiritual world is primary to and in control of the physical and visible world. You see, it's much easier to believe in a God you can see than it is to believe in a God who is invisible. It was much easier to follow Moses when he was in front of them, delivering God's instructions. It's a lot harder 
when he is gone and you don't know what happened to him and it seems that you've been abandoned, right? And so when, you, when there is no direct word from God in the moment, it's hard to continue to trust. But like God says uh, time and time again in the book of Isaiah, wait, wait. In Isaiah, wait looks like trust. And I think that's what the people were supposed to do. They were supposed to trust in God, which meant that they needed to wait on him. Even if it was hard to wait on God. And I think this is our struggle sometimes too, right? We have a hard time waiting on the Lord or trusting in the Lord, especially. That'll be fun on the recording. Especially when they can't see what's happening uh, in, the, in the spiritual realm, right? Sometimes don't we wish we could see what's going on? What, what's behind all this? Yeah, go ahead. When things go wrong, we tend to go back to something we knew. We fear the unknown, and they were facing the unknown. And they, were, they felt better with what they didn't know, and they knew the gods of Egypt knew them. Yeah. This, this god had them out in the desert. They didn't know him. Yeah. What's the old cliche? The devil you know is more comforting than the angel you don't? Yeah. Well, I know I used to pull the horses a lot, and if you had a horse get in trouble, he would try to go back to the last place he was safe. And they knew the safety of Egypt as bad as it was. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, we're going to see them frequently um, long for Egypt once again. We were just talking about in my um, history class this morning at at Ozark, we were talking about uh, in numbers when the people start to complain and grumble about the manna in the wilderness. And they talk about, oh, remember Egypt when we had all of the fish that we wanted? Right, and cucumbers and melons and leeks and garlic, right? They're like dreaming and drooling about garlic. Um, so there's, yeah, there's this tendency. We've already seen it in the book of Exodus, right? Where we're used to sit around the pots of meat and just have our fill. Um, this longing for what they knew, what was comfortable in the past. Um, so here's a question. How does this then fit into uh, the tabernacle section? Um, If you remember, chapters 25 through 31 essentially gave us the instructions for the tabernacle. If you've read Exodus before, you might remember that chapters 35 through 40 are going to deal with the building of the tabernacle. And then we have this, 32 through 34, this section in the middle that seems to interrupt it a little bit. How does this fit into that section? Well, I think... It fits in this way. The tabernacle is supposed to set up sacred space, right? We've got the people to God, and now we're worried about getting God to the people. The tabernacle is going to help that happen, right? The ark and the altar in the tabernacle have not yet been constructed, though, right? When they are built, the ark will stand in God's presence, but it will not mediate God's presence, okay? The cherubim on the ark are not worshipped, but rather they guard the divine presence. So the ark is not worshipped. I don't know if we knew that before, but this is something we need to realize. The people did not worship the ark. Okay, It, didn't, it was not some sort of like uh, repository of divine presence that they would then go and, and worship in front of. Right? Instead, they worshipped God in the ark 
provided some way to kind of mediate his presence among them. And so the people don't make idols because, um, I mean, God's instruction to the people don't make idols is because there is nothing people can create that is in the image of God, right? I mean, think about that. There isn't anything that anyone on earth can create that would actually be, that would be able to bear the image of God. There's one thing that God says bears the image of God. And what is that? Remember? Huh? Yeah. Well, I think Jesus for sure, but, but even man, right? Let us make man in our image. People are God's image bearers, right? And so worship is mediated through priests, but nothing receives worship on behalf of God. Right? The priests help to mediate the process, but nothing is worshipped on behalf of Yahweh. Okay? And so, in many ways, the tabernacle becomes the way that Yahweh will go before them so that they won't be, so that they won't, uh, be abandoned in the wilderness. This tabernacle will help the gods to go before them. Without the tabernacle, the people then start to worry and stress out that they don't have God with them Okay, and so this leads them into sin. And so I wonder then if the calf in some ways is a sort of anti-ark, right? You have the ark and then kind of you have its opposite, which is the calf. The calf is their attempt to have the gods go before them. Does this make sense? God's way to have Yahweh go before them is to build the tabernacle and to have the ark at the center. So God has actually provided a way. They just don't realize it yet. God is providing a system, a way for them to be able to dwell in his presence with his presence leading before them. Because they can't wait and they're worried about things, they build for themselves their own version of the ark, which is the calf, and thus commit idolatry in the process. It's easy for us to judge, but we can't grasp their frame of reference. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it was a, it was, they had a frame of reference, but it was completely different than anything we can imagine. Sure. No, I, I think you're very right. And it's, I, I think as we understand their perspective more and more, we realize how difficult things were for them. And for me, it becomes very convicting as I realize my own heart sometimes that I so often act very much like Israel did. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So this becomes off limits. Yeah, territory that's off limits. I think it's uh, an area that uh, in modern people uh, get real close to um, uh, violating uh, with the cross. You know, you mm-hmm. see at times, I have, you know, having just come back from Israel, there were people that me almost looked like they were worshiping that cross or that image of Jesus Hmm. rather than worshiping at 
hmm. the cross or an image of Jesus. Yeah. And we like we like to have something to focus on. Yeah. yeah. And so, there, God's concern was not to worship the ark, but worship at the ark. You know, I think does that does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the ark was in the was in the tabernacle, and so you yeah you go to worship at the tabernacle. You bring your offering or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's difficult for us to follow a God who is invisible, um, but he asks us to do so. We're not the only ones, guys, that God has asked to live by faith, right? This is actually what he's demanded from his people all along, to walk by faith and not by sight. We actually have more sight than just about anyone else in recorded biblical history, right? Um, From our perspective, we get to see the whole picture. But we still have to walk by faith. Okay, and so now the scene shifts. Uh, God knows what's going on. Moses does not. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down. And then notice this. Uh, It's kind of funny, but God kind of shifts all of the pronouns to Moses, right? Uh, "Go, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh Uh-oh, God was listening, Israelites, right? And so I wonder if this is is God in some some ways kind of disavowing his people like he does in Hosea chapter 1 where he says, you're going to call the name of this child Lo-Ami or not my people, right? kind of saying, you are no longer my people or not my people now. Um, Stuart notes that these people are uh, in, in the process of their sin. We are simply reminded that they are Egyptian Israelites and not yet Yahweh's Israelites. Indeed, old habits die hard, right? And so, verse 9, Moses hasn't said anything yet. Verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, Well, the Lord was just speaking to Moses, right? And so some people think this means Moses is speechless. So like the Lord says to Moses, go back because your people have made a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And then he pauses for Moses to respond. And Moses is like, uh, uh, and then God just continues. And so the Lord said again, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. This is a warning and not an inevitable promise, right? Much like what was prophesied against Nineveh, right? When Jonah went and preached against Nineveh. This situation is not without hope. Um, And when God speaks, though, he is saying, I am ready. I'm ready to wipe them out in my anger. And Moses, just to make a great nation... Think of the patriarch promise. I will make a great nation out of you. So I will make a great nation, Moses, starting with you now. And so um, Moses finds his words if he was speechless before. In verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, and then he turns back the pronouns uh, back to God, right? Um, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought 
out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Essentially, Moses here gives three reasons why God should not strike. And all of them apply, um, appeal to his glory. Right? God's glory and his, the sake of his name among the nations. He says, first of all, don't nullify your great act of deliverance. For why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. And so he says then, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Second, the reason is don't give the Egyptians reason to question you or doubt you, right? The Egyptians had a hard enough time with you, God. Why would you give them even more reason to question you or doubt you? But then his third reason, it seems, um, begins in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He appeals to his promise that he gave in the past. Okay, So three appeals, it seems like Moses makes here to God in order to convince God not to strike the people, not to wipe them out. Without Moses' interaction here, without his intervention, it certainly seems as if God says, well, this is the course that I'm headed on. But then God does something interesting, right? Something we don't necessarily think about God doing. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What does your version say? And the Lord changed his mind, turned from his evil, evil, okay, (laughs) turned from the evil that he was going to do to them, okay, anything else? It's a difficult word to translate, um, and it's often used of God in the Old Testament. Um, It means, well, it's variously translated as repent or relent or to change your mind. So the question is, does God change his mind? Right? Well, this is a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. Um, Here's what I think is perhaps a better way for us to look at it. John Walton talks about this word is actually uh, perhaps better understood as a balancing of a ledger. Okay? So God oftentimes will audit humanity or audit a people and find that they're in the red, right? That their evil outweighs their good for whatever reason. And so this word involves kind of bringing things back into balance, okay? So it's not necessarily a, um, a, a repentance or a changing of his mind as much as I have to bring things back into balance, right? And so this is what happens. This is what um, God says in Genesis chapter 6 with Noah. I'm sorry, I regret, or I repent that I have made these people. It's the same word as it's used here, right? Well, I don't think God's changing his mind and saying, I wish I would have never created humanity in the first place. I think he's saying there's something that's out of whack and we've got to bring that back into alignment, okay? I think what's happening here is God is, a, God is going through this process even for the sake of Moses, right? And he's allowing Moses to bring up these, these thoughts before him. 
And through the process, I think God is saying, okay, Moses, I will accept your appeal as somehow standing in the gap that now these people have made. And I will allow that to kind of balance the ledger book here. So I don't think God is changing his mind as if he really wasn't going to do this. And then Moses is just one heck of a salesman, right? I think instead God is, God is allowing Moses to go through this process in order that he might do something in their midst. Yeah. Doesn't he kind of change his mind with uh, Abraham concerning Sodom and Gomorrah quite a few times? Well, yeah. I mean, the question is, is does he? And who is that process for? Right. right. Yeah. So he says Abraham makes several requests of God. And each time God says, okay, even for 50, even for 40, all the way down to 10, right? So I think when God does these things like that, um, it was to, for Lot, it was to emphasize, okay, you know, you've been living this righteous life and, you know, they're not, you know. Mm-hmm. And with um, Moses here, uh, I don't think it was a change of mind. I think it's more like what you said, that uh, he's letting uh, Moses come to this conclusion that these people are worth going down and um, working with and, you know, bringing back uh, and, uh, and restoring their uh, faith in God instead of mm-hmm. Yahweh instead of this cat. And otherwise, you know, Moses could have just been smite him, God, you know, and he's letting Moses go through that process of saying, no, you know, I remember what you promised and uh, I'll go down and work with him. Yeah, right, right. I mean, if you think about it, it's similar to the whole biblical concept of prayer, right? Does God really need us to tell him about the situations in our life? Does he really not know, right? I mean, prayer is really a a funny thing if you think about it. What am I going to tell God that he doesn't already know? Even if I confess the deepest, darkest secrets of my heart to God, he already knows that, right? And yet the prayer is this thing that he's given to us in order that we might communicate with him. I think sometimes it's the only time we get quiet enough to hear him. Yeah. And prayer, I mean, prayer does things, right? We, We say all the time, right? Well, praise the Lord. It's the power of prayer. I, I truly believe that because people were praying, this thing happened. Well, so we believe that our prayers do something in the heavenly realms, but are we actually changing God's mind? You know, it's a bit of a mystery. So, I think it's interesting to, to think about and to watch Moses' um, life keep, I mean, from, you know, saying, I don't, I don't want to go, I, I, I'm not a good talker, and I, and I, I can't handle this, can't do this by myself, and then God you know, gave him the staff and gave him all these things, and all the way to now to where he's talking back to God and trying to talk God that he's bold enough, strong enough, has a good enough relationship mm-hmm. with God to be able to be that bold. Right. It, it just, it's, it's a real commentary on our lives as well, that as we get close to God, we can be uh, as bold and be able to talk with, uh, with him like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, and so God says, okay, I won't bring this on the people, but there still will be consequences. As my son, we've talked about before, right? Um, you can't take 
you may do something bad and you may say, I'm sorry, but you can't take it back. I was talking to my son about this one night and he goes, I understand. Uh, you can say, I'm sorry, but you can't take away the bruise. It's like, Ooh, wise words. Okay, so verse 15, that Moses turned, and then we get this little aside almost, uh, where we find out about the tablets, right? Moses turned and went down from the mountain, two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Um, this, I think, is kind of interesting. We find out here that the tablets were written on both sides. Did you guys know that? Maybe just because I said it a couple weeks ago. But uh, yeah, I think the tablets were written on both sides. That seems to be what it says, right? Um, it's like on from this and from this is what the Hebrew says. So I think it just means kind of on on this side of it and then on the opposite side, it was written. Perhaps this means that they were uh, inscribed all the way through. In fact, some early rabbis thought that, um, you know, they were inscribed by the finger of God. So God had like a laser, right, uh, inscribed, put his finger through these tablets and had inscribed the whole thing. So that worked for most of the Hebrew letters. um, But there's one Hebrew letter uh, the Sonic, right? That looks like this. So what's the problem? Yeah, the hole falls out, right? And so the rabbis, though, they're pretty clever, pretty clever people. So the rabbis said, and as for the center of the Sonic, it stayed in place by a miracle of God. <laughs> so, so what? I just can imagine Moses like looking at that, you know, and like pushing it, right? like going back and forth. Anyway, so maybe they were, maybe it was just inscribed all the way through. Maybe it was uh, just written on front and on the back. I'm not sure, but it does seem like it was written on both sides. Uh, There is no question this is the writing of God and, in fact, the work of God. And so, verse 17, as they're coming back down the mountain, Joshua, who was waiting for Moses on the side of the mountain, uh, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. And he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. Why is Joshua concerned about war? Who is Joshua? Yeah, well, he's the one who will lead the battle of Jericho. But before we met him in battle, right? He's kind of Israel's main general, right? Leading them out. He's their army commander. And so, of course, this is the guy who's going to be worried when he gets close to the camp and starts hearing this shouting, Okay, he starts to think, oh, no, someone has attacked and our people are suffering under there. I've got to get out there and do something. Um, And then Moses replies with this clever little poetic play on words. Um, I think it's Moses kind of impromptu song. And uh, this is what he says. Verse 18. It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. What he does um, in Hebrew is he says, it is not the anah of victory. It is not the anah of defeat. It is the anah that I hear. We kind of miss all of that in English, right? Because it just, we say 
sound of victory or sound of defeat, sound of singing. Um, and I think what this is, is like in what we would do in English, a play on words. The first one, it's, it's not the answering. Ana means kind of answer. So it's not the answering of, uh, it's not the answering of people who are victorious, right? So, I mean, think about a concert you've been to or a time you've been in a massive crowd and people just start cheering, right? Well, if you heard that from a distance, you can understand how that sound would be a little, okay, is this a good shouting or is this a bad shouting, right? Uh, if it's not boo, if people are just crying out, what, are, what am I hearing? So it's, it's not the shout of victory, people at a sports game yelling because their team did something good. It's also not the ana of defeat. That is, you know, like massive groans or wailing because people have been killed. Instead, and then here, I think in the last instance, uh, he says, it is ana that we hear. And there, I think he switches to a different meaning of ana. Uh, like we have several words in English that mean multiple different things. There's another meaning of ana, which means kind of like antiphonal singing or... Um, yeah, like antiphonal answering, so back and forth. So, you know, think about a chant at a baseball game or a group waiting for the main band to come out, out at a concert so that the, the crowd starts singing their main, like, hit song, right? And so I think what Moses is saying, this sound that you hear that sounds a lot like, <sighs> right? Well, it actually, there's some definition to that sound. It's not victory. It's not defeat. It's this chanting. That's actually what we're hearing. And it's not a good chanting. So anyway, we miss a little bit of that. I don't know if you enjoy that little poetic moment there, but um, it's a brief respite before we get to Moses's anger in the next verse. So we'll take whatever we can get. <clears throat> verse 19 then, as soon as he came near the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing. So they were dancing, whatever. Remember, we weren't quite sure what that word meant. Uh, they rose up to play or to indulge in revelry. Whatever this was, it apparently involved dancing. And when Moses sees the calf and the dancing, his anger burns hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the, of the mountain. What, were, what was on these tablets? The writing of God, probably the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. What were the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel? Covenant. God's covenant with them. In the ancient world, to break a covenant, you shattered the document. You smashed it to pieces. So I don't think this is that Moses needs to go to an anger management class because he just lets things get out of hand, right? Throws them down. This is why we can't have nice things, Moses. Right? No, I don't think that's what's going on. Rather, I think he's making an overt statement. Right? This is the covenant that God has made with you. And do you see what you're doing? And he throws them down at the foot of the mountain. I don't know if you remember. This is the place, uh, Exodus chapter 24, that Moses built an altar in order to make this covenant with God. The same phrase, the foot of the mountain. That's the same place he throws these tablets down. And I think what he's saying is the, the covenant is off. You've ruined it. You've broken it. And whatever you were hoping to establish with God is now done. It's been abolished. 
It's been destroyed. Does this make sense? Okay. So I don't, I don't think it's just an act of anger simply, although I do think it is um, motivated by his anger. I think he's actually invalidating the covenant. And so after he does this, he then takes the calf, verse 20, that they had made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. That's weird, right? <clears throat> but I think this is probably an idiomatic way of referring to complete and total destruction of something. Uh, look at this, First Kings chapter 6, sorry, First Kings chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. <clears throat> Sorry, I have to find my place here. Uh, Behold, I will utterly sweep Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of, of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha in this, who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of him, his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And so being destroyed and then consumed was a way of saying it has been completely and totally and absolutely wiped off the face of the earth. But here's one that I think is a little bit closer. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 6. Uh, So now we're talking about Josiah's reforms and how Josiah is kind of moving through the land and reforming things, moving people back to serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He's getting rid of a lot of the idols. Verse 6, this is what it says. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And then again, we have the same thing essentially in verse 12. And so I think what's happening is this is just kind of a, a convention in the ancient Near East to talk about completely and totally and absolutely destroying something. So it feels weird for us, right? Why would just burn it? That would probably be good enough to destroy it. But I think by burning it and then grinding it and then scattering it and then making people consume it, it's kind of a way of saying this is completely and totally and absolutely destroyed. Does that make sense? Okay. And so um, the water is probably the water which is flowing from the rock, the mountain, and I think this may be the same rock that the water came from in Exodus chapter 17. And, and so there's a whole lot of irony, I think, there. The, the water which Moses allowed to happen because God was being gracious and compassionate. So the water that's flowing is the same water of Exodus chapter 17. Now they're drinking their idolatry from it. Okay, And so <clears throat> what happens next? Well... Oh, Aaron. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Moses knows the responsibility lies with Aaron, right? The people may be to blame partially, but this great sin, uh, the responsibility for this great sin rests on Aaron himself. His job is to take care of them and make sure these things don't happen. And so this is what Aaron says. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. 
So up to this point, we're with him, right? Like, yeah, we understand, Aaron. He says, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. We're with him. And I threw it into the fire. Yes, we're with you. And out came this calf. What? Really? Yeah. So you can see like Moses, like, okay, let me go through this one more time just to be sure. So you just threw it in the fire and it came out, right? It's like my children, right? So let me, let me make sure you were angry at your sister, but then you were keeping your hands to yourself and then suddenly a hand smacked her upside the face, right? But your hands were in your pockets when it happened. Okay. And so um, I think we just have to scratch our heads here and ask, what, what could he possibly be thinking? Like, does he actually think Moses is going to be convinced by this terrible excuse? It just came out. What do you expect me to do, Moses? Well, I, I wonder um, if there's more going on here than perhaps um, we immediately recognize. In the ancient Near East, there was this ritual uh, associated with idolatry, uh, the making of idols, that was called the opening of the mouth ritual. Okay, So there's technical stuff written on this, and I'm not going to bore you with too much of this, but I do think it has relevance here. So here's what you would do. You would make an idol, okay, so you would hire your craftsmen, and they would choose the finest wood, and they would choose the best metal or gold or silver, right, and you'd form, you'd form your idol, and then you'd go through this process where you would declare that this idol was actually born in heaven, okay, that this idol is a, is a product of the gods, even though you've just made it, fashioned it with your hands, right, and so after you go through all of this stuff, uh, you you move through these various incantations and chants. In fact, this afternoon I was um, there's a, a a book called uh, Born in Heaven, Made on Earth, and I was reading some of these uh, some of these early texts that talk describe this process. Okay, and in this one text that I was reading, it talked about uh, how the the people, the craftsmen who made the idol, they were supposed to say chant several times, "Born in Heaven by your own power." Then they go through several more incantations uh, and chants about the God's divine origin. And then towards the end of the ceremony, as they're kind of finishing up, okay, they should repeat the, can- uh, the incantation on the day when the God was created, is what they say. And then they say, this is a pure statue suited to great divine attributes. And then, and now I'm going to quote from this text, okay? So this is an ancient Near Eastern text. This is what it says you do after you've, gone through all of these chants, all of these incantations, then it says, all of the craftsmen who approached that God and their equipment, you make them stand and their hands with a headband or with a band, you bind and cut with a knife of tamarisk wood. Other documents say you cut them off. And I think that's the idea. All of the craftsmen get their hands bound and then ritually severed, okay? And then you say, I did not make him, that is the statue, the God of, uh, I did not make this statue, um, the God, I did not make him. You make them say this, okay? 
So you have your hands ritually severed. And then the craftsmen are all supposed to declare publicly, we did not make this image. Okay? So this feels weird to us. What's even weirder is that there's a document telling us, let the craftsmen make it, and then have the craftsmen say they didn't make it. Right? So it's like, okay, nobody's fooled by this in thinking that this thing just dropped down out of heaven. So here's what I think here's what I think's happening in these texts. These texts are telling us that there was a way in the ancient world that you could declare I didn't make it. In fact, I don't even have any hands. What can I make something if I don't have any hands, right? And in that process, it was declaring that there this idol actually has a divine origin, right? Maybe in the past you had had a hand in making it, but somewhere in the process of you breathing life into the idol, the gods came down and filled it. And then by you saying, I didn't make it, it was saying, this thing is legitimate. It's real. And the gods are actually living inside of it. Does this make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? And so I wonder if that's a little bit of what's going on here. It's not maybe so much Aaron just being an idiot, although there is that as well, okay? I wonder if this is not evidence of like his further apostasy, that he's actually trying to tell Moses, but Moses, I think there's something legitimate about this idol, okay? And perhaps by saying, I just threw it in and out came this calf, it's sort of like he's saying, I mean, what are you going to do, Moses? I mean, you should have seen the people worshiping it. You should have seen the effect that it had on people. There's something special about this, Moses. I mean, I can't explain it, right? And so I wonder if Aaron is not in this moment kind of even attaching greater significance to the calf than it seems like he does at first glance. Yeah. It seems like that wasn't there. Like maybe that had, that had gone or maybe that was on top of the mountain or something. But it seems that they didn't see that. So they're missing Moses and they're missing the visible representation of God that they've seen. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That was my question too. I went back in the letter and it said it was there for seven days, I think. So I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't there before. Where did this... Yeah. You mean the fire on top of the mountain or the pillar? Well, or maybe both? Yeah, both. So that's just it. Is this back in 19? Is that what you're, where it says seven days? Well, well it was where they, they go up there and takes the 70. Okay. Okay, and the cloud covered it, verse 16, the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. And so, verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and was up, went up on the mountain. And so, yeah, so maybe there wasn't a cloud among the people. Maybe it was all up on the mountain by then. Yeah, I'm not sure. So, yeah. Okay, so... In the end, I don't think he is just having a brief escape from reality here. I think he is actually literally unable to separate the truth of God from the influence of his culture. 
and is, is making a pretty incredible statement. Questions about this idea? Okay. I think this is even proved uh, even more in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, or uh, in order to be a laughing stock among their enemies, is I think sort of the idea there. Aaron has a key role of responsibility in this for letting them go to this extent. Um, he says, uh, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And so Moses now calls for allegiance, right? I'm going to give you a second chance, O Israel. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me now. Well, when he does that, all of the Levites come to him, okay? Um, and so Moses sends out the Levites to dispense justice. Uh, put your sword on your side. Each one of you go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And every one of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And I think this is everybody who you see as committing flagrant idolatry against God. You just strike them down. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So it's pretty incredible. And yet this is, this is the extent to which the people had kind of just gone crazy, right? They've, they've made themselves a calf. And now because they had done that, anything goes. And I think the camp was just absolutely running wild. There was no authority or no control anymore. And so Moses gets things under control, I think, with this process. And so verse 30 then, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses isn't sure how this is going to go, but he hopes it's going to be okay, right? And so verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And so Moses does not downplay the sin of Israel before God. And in the process tells us something about biblical repentance. Right? Biblical repentance requires full and total confession of sin. Right? Not a partial, I know I made you mad and I'm sorry, confession. But an ability to detail the particulars of our sin and the unrighteousness that we committed before a holy and awesome and mighty God, right? Moses says, this is exactly what we did. This is the total scope of our sin, O oh God. And he throws himself on God's mercy. He says, verse 32, if you will forgive their sin, dot, dot, dot. And he doesn't even finish the thought, right? But if you won't, if you will forgive their sin, I think he means, then please, please do it quickly. But if you don't, please blot me out of your book that you have written. I think this book is probably uh, like a book of life. That is a book of names of all those who are living. And I think what Moses is essentially asking is not for God to send him to hell, but rather for God to just kill him. Uh, if, if, if you're not going to forgive the people of their sin, take me now. Um, like I'm just, I'm ready to go because I don't think I can handle this anymore. And so go, uh, God says 
to Moses, verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And uh, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. And just in case we forgot, just in case we started to believe Aaron, that the calf just popped out of the fire. Oh, by the way, this was the calf that Aaron had made, right? One final note in in chapter 32. Okay, so then chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey. Up to this point, it sounds pretty good, right? In fact, it sounds a whole lot like everything that God had promised earlier in the book of Exodus. However, then God says something disastrous. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In this moment, I think, and I put this uh, on your uh, paper for tonight. We're now on to the new paper, uh, verse 3. I think, in essence, this is saying, guys, the tabernacle project has been canceled. You see, he invalid, Moses invalidated the covenant when he broke the tablets at the foot of the mountain. Now I think God is saying, hey, remember all of that stuff about the building of the tabernacle? Never mind. I'm not coming with you. If I did, you would not be able to handle it. I mean, I would strike you dead before you, before you knew what was happening. This people, no way. It's off. And I think they realize what God is saying. Um, in many ways, his calling off of the tabernacle project is a gracious move, lest God destroy them. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it's devastating news for them. Listen to how they respond in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, it actually says in Hebrew, this evil word. It was terrible news for them, right? They mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Note the tragic irony here, right? Uh, the, uh, Nahum Sarna says in his commentary, the people wanted to provide themselves a reassuring symbol of God's continued presence in their midst by building a golden calf. Yet that very symbol became the instrument of their alienation from God. The very thing they were trying to secure became the means by which that became undone. Doug Stewart says, what they had so craved and had tried to manufacture, direct divine presence, was now even further removed from them than it had been. The rest of their journey would now require more faith not less, and would be even more frightening because the people would be more on their own than they ever had been before. And so I think the people realize how terrible this is for them. Now, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And so they stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Verse 7 then details for us what happens um, in the tent of meeting. This tent is not the tabernacle, but seems to be sort of this temporary substitute so that Moses, maybe so that Moses doesn't have to keep on going up and down the mountain. Guys got to be getting tired by now. 
uh, traveling up and down the mountain. And after all, when you're up on the mountain, who knows what the people of Israel are going to do. Moses is like, I got to put up camp down here because I got to keep my eyes on you guys. Can't leave you at all because who knows what you're going to do. And so this, this tent of meeting that they set up is sort of a tabernacle substitute, a way for God's presence to come now to Moses without God actually entering the camp. This never had held sacrifices, uh, never was a place for sacrifices. It never held any of the tabernacle furniture. It was just a visual reminder of God's, uh, of God's presence and actually his distance from the people. Okay? But notice what happens. Moses gets up and he goes to the tent of meeting. And when he does, everybody kind of rises from their tent and they stand and they watch him go. Right. And then he enters and the cloud comes down and then they fall down and they worship. And this is a visual reminder, I think, that Moses is, in fact, God's man. Like whether or not they've questioned that before, it's proof now that God is working through Moses and he is continuing to speak to Moses and through Moses. Whatever Moses says, then, is what they need to do. If they have any hope of God's presence continuing with them, they need to listen to this man. Right. And so, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You didn't tell me, God, who it is that you're going to send with me. You just said you'll send your angel. Um, Yet you have said, I know you by name, and have, you have also found favor in my sight. This is the essence of Moses' plea, I think. God, don't abandon us. Send your presence, not an angel. God's presence has been revoked and this jeopardizes the whole system. And so I think Moses here is pleading for God's presence to go with them. Um, Verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And so God responds in verse 14. Listen to what he says. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. In many ways, God gives in here, okay? He says that his presence is going to go with Moses. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean at this point that the tabernacle project is back on, but at least he's willing to suggest that he will, in fact, give them something. And God will cause them to rest, most likely in Canaan. He will allow them freedom from fighting against their enemies. He will give them rest in the land. I think that's what God means when he says, I'll give them rest, okay? He's not giving them a nap. Maybe they're going to be able to nap because they don't have enemies, but uh, it's it's a rest, a, a safety and security within the land, okay? And I think this is, in fact, what Jesus speaks of. Uh, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest happens when those who are in charge are in charge and doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? We rest when God is on his throne, right? God rests on the seventh day because I think he's settled in to do the ruling of creation. We rest on the Sabbath because we stop and remember that God is in charge and not us. And so we come to Jesus, who is the giver of rest, because he's ultimately the one who is in power. He's the one who has the authority. And so, verse 15, this seems strange, right? Uh, Moses, and he said to him, this is Moses saying to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Wait, didn't, didn't God just promise you his presence, Moses? 
But the reality is, um, he says, if your presence will not go with me, uh, the ESV says with me. That's not in the original text, right? Uh, the idea is that if your presence will not go with all of us, I think is what Moses is saying, then we don't want to go. God has promised to Moses in the singular that his presence will go. But he has not yet promised to all of the people. And Moses wants God to be with everybody and not just Moses. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? Not just with me, God, but with us. That's how everybody will know who you are. That, I, that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And so the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And now I think it is at this point the tabernacle project is back on. Moses is pleased before God has has won God's heart so that now God says, yes, I will go with you. Moses, however, is not yet fully satisfied. He needs more proof. Um, and I think some of this bargaining back and forth with God uh, has put a strain in some way on their relationship. And I think Moses is, is ready to say, okay, God, but I, I need proof. I need to see you in all of your glory. And that's what we're going to talk about um, in our last week together. So thanks, guys. I'll see you next week as we wrap up Exodus. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.